I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings, everybody out there in podcast land. It's Benny and Dan, live from Israel. <laughs> and live from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, coming to you with a special broadcast of Swords of Iron, the Simchat Torah War. Uh, as, we, as we catch up with one another about where we've been and, and where we've been doing since our last episode in 2022, uh, I just want to let everybody know that we will be broadcasting regular updates about the war here on Facebook Live, uh, on Spotify, across the podcast universe, uh, and, and wherever possible uh, in order to bring you up to date with what's going on on the ground in Israel and how it's affecting uh, the Jewish world of, uh, beyond and around the world. Um, yeah, the last, the last episode we did was uh, June of last year. And uh, for those um, for those who are listening, for those who had been listening to Juanced before, we had recorded over sixty episodes over the course of two years, uh, doing deep dive analysis, nuanced conversations, different points of view on anything related to Israel, the Jewish world, and uh, and the Middle East. Uh, different guests every week, um, and then you, uh, Benny, uh, sad for me, maybe happy for you, uh, moved to uh, back to your your home state of Minneapolis. Um, and uh, I moved to a new apartment, and uh, work and life got crazy, and we put the uh, show on hold. And uh, unfortunately, we've been talking for some time about bringing back uh, Juanced. Uh, unfortunately, it is this this tragic um, and harrowing time uh, for for Israel, for this part of the region, and and I hope not, but for Jews everywhere uh, that we uh, brought back the show. So we will be broadcasting uh, live weekly um, with uh, the usual format. We will have different guests with us presenting different points of view. Uh, we will have uh, friends, uh, uh, Palestinian friends. Um, we will have friends from the Arab world. We will have military analysts uh, and societal analysts uh, joining us. Uh, but for this episode, it's uh, me and Benny uh, coming back. For those who are new to Juanced, uh, we welcome you to the show. And you're welcome to go back and check out over 60 episodes that were recorded um, from really from when uh, COVID hit until until summer of last year. So right. this is actually, sorry to interject, Dan, this is episode 64, if, if you're counting. 64. All right. Um, yeah, catch us up uh, just real quick. Just kind of bring in the uh, our viewers that that lost touch with us. Where have you been? What have you been doing? So sure, I'll, I'll just catch you up until where where things were uh, up until last Friday. Uh, I'm I, I have now after nearly twenty years living in Israel. I, I my family and I moved back to uh, to the United States, uh, both for family reasons, personal reasons, and for work reasons. Uh, as some of you may or may not know, 
Uh, I am director of Sales North America for a company called Kennis Tours, which specializes in Israel and travel around the Jewish world. Uh, we are very, very, or had been very, very busy with a number of different projects, bringing thousands of people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, to Israel, and again, to other countries around the world. And, and my time is greatly taken up by efforts to, uh, to, to make sure that people are able to come and, and join those trips and travel around the United States, and in fact, the world. Uh, and um, my family's here. We live uh, in, a, in a place called St. Paul. Uh, my wife is uh, teaching now at our local Jewish day school, yada, 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 you get the point. Um, that, that's kind of what we're doing. Very different from Israel, but Israel, Dan, has its sort of tendency to uh, work its way back into your life, whether you want it to or not. Whether you want it or not. It's inescapable, uh, for good and for bad. What yeah. have you been doing? I, I've been very busy with Shiraka, um over the last uh, year, uh, really over the last two years, but the last year. Um took over as executive director of Chirac, and we've been doing an unbelievable amount of work. Uh, ironically, maybe not ironically, maybe necessary more than ever to build uh, peace and dialogue across the region. And the network and the people that we've engaged with are engaging with us on a daily basis, um, asking questions, offering sympathies and support. Um, and, and that is maybe a small bright spot for me during all of this uh, darkness. And, and we'll unpack this. And this episode is really it's really meant to unpack for our uh, viewers and listeners everything that's happened uh, over this unbelievably insane week here. Um, and I think that's safe to say no matter uh, where you come from, uh, this has captured uh, the world's attention um, uh, and not not in a good way. Um, so we're going to try to unpack everything that's happened here, um, do a little deep dive analysis and kind of set the stage for the next series of episodes that we're going to do. Uh, over the what I hope is a short time, but but I'm afraid it might be longer than we uh, than we hope for. Right. Um, and and just to reflect on something you said, when we did we did start this during COVID, uh, so now this is the second crisis which is costing us to podcast. And uh, and honestly, Dan, too too short of time. Uh, I was thinking to myself, um, you know, where were we in 2019, and where are we now, and how fast the world can change, and 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 just bring us to new paradigms. In any event, uh, look, uh, b- before we get into everything and, and what happened and what's going on and the reaction and so on and so forth, I think a lot of people out there that are listening and that will be listening would just like to briefly know, I mean, you're coming to us from your balcony in Rehoboth. We can see behind you uh, your beautiful view of what is a beautiful city, uh, which unfortunately has been in the news you know, a couple of times in the past couple of days. So why don't you let us know how you're doing and how your kids are doing and how your family and wife and everybody is doing over there. Yeah, sure. Look, um, you know, sometimes I, I kind of uh, have a, have a bit of a, a stoic smile. Maybe it's my personality, maybe after spending close to a decade in the military. Um, life is easier in Rehova than it is for those living in the South. Um, and that's to say, look, it, it's been tense here. And I've been interviewing nonstop on, on international media, trying to explain uh, what what's happened, what's unfolded. Um, we've had, thankfully in Rehovot, only rocket attacks, um, at least 20, uh, spent the first day, we spent three hours in the bomb shelter, been woken up in the middle of the night. Um, and, um, you kind of get used to it and maybe I've become numb to how used to it you get because, um, people I know who are new immigrants or who are visiting Israel 
are in complete shock and terror and aren't functioning. Um, and, and I'm kind of like, okay, another bomb shelter. All right, let's, let's, let's get this over with. Um, so thankfully, thankfully me and my family are fine. Thankfully, um, only, <laughs> you know, nobody that I was very close to that I know of yet has died in this. Um, but I'm seeing more and more and more relatives of people that I know, uh, who, um, who have been killed. Um, and it's rough. This one really hits, this one really hits home. Um, we're, you know, 30, 40 miles North of Gaza. It's not that close, but it's also not that far. Exactly. And, and what's bizarre to me is, um, you know, first, of course, before I even get into that, you know, we're happy that you and your family and your friends are, are, are all, are all safe. And I should say safe, but not okay. Right. Uh, that's, right. That's kind of a hashtag that's been going around and it's, it resonates um, because people that are safe are not okay. It doesn't mean that you're safe, that you're just, you know, yeah, we're good. We're going back, you know, going about our day. It's, it's not that way. Um, but a lot but, of work on compartmentalizing. That's a hard you know, 100%. Um, yeah. You know, and, and even for me, you know, I think that being over here and we'll get into how, you know, how my feelings are going through what effectively is my first Israeli war, not in Israel or, or, you know, military operation, not in Israel and how it is to see it over here and what's been going on. But I think just in a, in a personal note, um, what's been going on for me is that, you know, we're, we're here in, in the U S which, you know, if you turned off all media, if you turned off everything, you know, you, you may be able to not know that something's going on, except that there, there are a lot of public displays. And, and again, we'll get into that. Um, but uh, my in-laws were visiting from Israel when this happened. I was away at a, at a travel conference in Puerto Rico when this happened uh, last Saturday, uh, you know, immediately came home as soon as I could. Um, you know, we, of course, Israeli family living in the States have lots of people that we know and we're worried about back home. Uh, my in-laws cannot get back home. It's a problem. Uh, my brother-in-law was meant to get married later this month and, and my wife was going to travel to Israel. And I, I think that that's going to, you know, perhaps not happen or, or be postponed. Uh, and for them, I mean, it's, you know, we have our life here. We, you know, we have jobs and our kids and school and whatnot. They're just sitting around in my house. And then it's like, we got channel 12 news from Israel on TV all the time. That's just what we're doing. So they're doing the same thing yep. in my yep. house that they would be doing at their house except they're, they're sort of out of harm's way. And there's a lot of feelings of guilt that come with that, I think, on their part and on our part and my wife's part. And, and then, you know, being over here, but also having deep ties, you know, we do have people in our circles that have been, you know, that have either been injured, kidnapped or, 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 or murdered. Uh, there's somebody from my office, my, my, one of our tour operators, Michal Buganim, uh, her, her, her uh, niece uh, was, uh, is missing. Um, and you know, there's a lot of posts on Facebook and I'll post about it too, as well about, you know, if you know any information or if anybody sees her or knows anything, you know, that's another thing too. Um, somebody we just learned today in our parent company, East of sport was, was murdered. They were at the, uh, the rave. Um, and, and, you know, every family has stories like this. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hitting us. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, in, in many ways, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's adds to the, you know, the dimension of it being strange over here for me. And anyway, in any event, let's, let's, um, for those of you who, who by this point don't know what's going on or been living under a rock. Yeah. Yeah. We may have been living under, under a rock, not Iraq, a, a rock, uh, because one could be confused in these times. Dan, um, why don't you tell us what happened? Take us through. What yeah. Happened um, 
So Saturday morning, you know, Simchat Torah, six in the morning, we we uh, get rudely wakened out of our beds with with sirens, uh, running to to the shelter, grabbing the kids out of their beds, tie the dog up on the leash. Uh, we don't actually our bomb shelter is too far away to get to quickly. It's it's we're on the eighth floor and it's in the basement. So we kind of run with the rest of the uh, top floor neighbors to the middle floors and just hope the building doesn't take a direct hit. Um, and there's siren after siren after siren. And are we thinking, is this a glitch? Is this an error? Um, and we realize, uh, now, of course, I, I observe Shabbat. I don't have my phone with me, but my neighbors are starting to turn their phones on what's going on. And it starts you know, the realization starts setting in that this is not just another uh, rocket attack. Uh, something much bigger, much scarier is happening as um, hordes, I mean, the, the, the kind of concept of barbarian hordes, uh, you know, just raiding through uh, medieval villages is what comes to mind or, you know, like a zombie attack where they're just going around and, and just ripping people apart and, and uh, everything in their way. Hordes of uh, Palestinian terrorists from Hamas and from Islamic Jihad. Uh, s- turns out, we only found this out later, bro- but they broke through the fence, the, the supposedly um, completely uh, impermeable security fence on the border. And and we're conducting, you know, we're going village to village, kibbutz to kibbutz, um, killing people, uh, a wanton killing spree. Um, by the end of the day, the numbers started climbing and climbing and climbing, hundreds of people, and we found out we found out that this was just the tip of the iceberg of what had really happened. And what it turns out is they had staged, Hamas had staged what turned out to be an incredibly sophisticated um, terror military attack um, with you know electronic warfare using drones. Uh, with paratroopers on hang gliders flying over the fence, uh, tunnels to creep up to the fence, psychological warfare to to be allowed to have built up a presence near the fence and with, without the idea of thinking that they were going to do something about it. And then, uh, as it turned out, uh, probably over 2,000 terrorists streaming through with um, you know machine guns and knives and, and just killing everyone in their path. Um, we found out later that the first places they got to were um, a couple of small military bases on the border. They they butchered some of some of the people in their beds. The, the women they raped uh, the women soldiers, um, killed everyone, stole military equipment. They found then a rave. It's not clear if they knew that the rave was going on or if it was a um, you know lucky coincidence for them, um, and, and killed three hundred people at this piece rave this peace music festival including people from all over the world who were there and there's a lot of video of that both from the hamas terrorists and from the people at the rave who who were caught completely off guard and and were just mowed down by machine gun fire running for their lives uh, and, and again the stories of of women being raped before they were killed uh next to other corpses is just chilling i don't know how else to describe it and uh as the few IDF troops um, who were there, uh, police officers, we have kind of a civilian defense units in, in border areas, were trying their best to fight back. Um, the army, where the hell was the army? Um, and, and you're seeing then on, you know, the media got set up pretty fast. And you're seeing it live stream, people desperately calling for help 
trapped in their homes as the terrorists are literally breaking into the homes uh, or setting homes on fire or going in and then just executing family after family after family, kidnapping kids, babies, elderly people. Um, and, and we're watching this unfold live on TV over the course of two days. And then all the footage is coming out. Now, uh, this this is now Friday afternoon. Uh, so we're, we're seven days after this happened. Uh, the death toll, the Israeli death toll is over 1,300. Um, and they're still finding bodies. Um, over 100 of those are security forces who died fighting. Um, at least 100, if not 150, kidnapped and taken into Hamas tunnels. Uh, again, children, babies, uh, old people, uh, um, you know, dragged into, into the Hamas tunnels across the border. Um, around 5,000 rockets fired at different Israeli cities. Um, I check my phone every you know few seconds, and, and the, the southern communities are still getting fired upon throughout the day. Um, and, and only later in that day, and then the next day, did the IDF begin the, the counteroffensive from the air uh, on Gaza. Uh, the numbers of, of Gazan dead um, from the IDF retaliatory strikes are over 1,000, and that's going to continue to grow. And we'll get into that um, throughout. It's just, you know, we're still kind of pulling out of the shock here um, of, of the, the scope of, of the number of dead is, is just mind-blowing to us. And then, and then more than that is maybe the brutality with which so many of them were murdered um, is even more mind-boggling to us. It seems like... Uh... It seems like Hamas has become uh, ISIS. I just saw a quote from the United States Minister of uh, uh, Secretary of Defense, who said uh, he knows ISIS, and and Hamas is now can be said is worse than what ISIS did. I mean, I think that everybody should just let you know that sink in for a second. You know, when you think about the things that ISIS has done, and 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 we know here on the podcast, and Steve Sotloff was a good friend of mine, and. And, and the knowledge that that's now happened to dozens of people in that way, if not more, you know, of all different shapes and sizes and roles, whether it's soldiers or women or children or elderly people. And some of the elderly people are Holocaust survivors, which just somehow makes it worse, even though, uh, you know, that they've gone through this before. And I think that a statistic that's been going around is that this is the single largest or uh, most death in one day for the Jewish people in any given day since the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and um, maybe the biggest one, one of the biggest terror attacks in history. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. But on both any, in terms of on anyone, anywhere. Right. Both in terms of the amount of impacted dead and, and injured, as well as the amount of terrorists that have participated in the attack itself. And I think that, Look, I was woken up by uh, by my wife on Saturday morning uh, at around three thirty in the morning here, uh, or, or where I was in, in Puerto Rico, um, basically saying, "Benny, call me when you get this. Uh, you know, uh, th- there's a war. Um, it's not like before. Call me." Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of us have been sort of, and I mean, you and I both, and we've talked about this in, in episodes, even going back, you know, towards the beginning of our show we've been waiting in sort of knowing that, you know, there was a large war, maybe if not imminent, definitely not imminent, but brewing that, you know, there's actors in the region that 
clearly hate Israel and hate the Jews and, and are opportunistic and, and whatnot. And then, and then we've sort of, you know, been told by whether it was sources in the media or, you know, uh, different commentators about, you know, seeing things in the past year happen in Israeli society that would be considered weakening of, of the society's resilience or military readiness and all these things. And you kind of want to brush those aside and, and, you know, live in this sort of comforting place where you, where you think that, you know, you're, right. you're good with, with what's going on in the idea of strong. And then, and then just watching this and seeing like, when I turned tuned in on Saturday morning and my phone started watching the news, it was like, what the hell? How does this even happen? Because helplessness. I mean, that's helplessness. But not only that, like you and I, specifically you and I, because of what we do, have been on countless geopolitical sort of uh, tours of the Gaza envelope region, where on all of these sort of tours were shown the defense. Uh, implements in the region, whether it's the barrier that's been built for, I don't know how many billions of dollars, or whether it's the high-tech touch fence, or whether it's the surveillance in the, in the air and drones and all these things. And you're led to believe sort of in, in this comforting, you know, to be comforted by the fact that they're over there, we're over here, we disengaged, and they can't cross the border if they want to. And and that's why they shoot rockets. And that's why, because we've now limited this conflict to rockets because they go over. And then this happens. And you kind of sit there from abroad, and I'm sure it's even worse when you're in Israel, and you say, you know, WTF. <laughs> like, how? So maybe touch on that. I mean, what the hell? Yeah. And uh, before I do, I want to tell those of us who are with us live, um, we see you. We thank you for joining. If you if you could do two things first, if people have questions for us while we're while we're live, please do put them in the chat function, and we will try to address them. Uh, there is a little bit of a lag between when you're hearing it, but um, um, secondly, uh, we encourage you to share the live feed on your streams, and, and let's try to get more people in and listening to this. Definitely, um, yeah. So, how did this happen? We're trying, you know. And by the way, I'm one of those military analysts who, who um, mea culpa, you know, um, who, who aired in our analysis of reading Hamas and what was going on. I was in I was in the military when we built that border uh, barrier. Um, I, I've served on it. I, I was I was not a com- combat soldier, but I did do guard duty from time to time, and I served on the Gaza border. Um, and I remember the the um, briefings I got before taking over a, a stretch of uh, you know w- one of the border communities and, and securing it for a week. Um, and one of the scenarios was uh, to be completely invaded by by Hamas um, popping up from tunnels that they dug, etc. Um, uh, since then, since then, um, you know, the IDF made a, a couple of huge, huge mistakes here. Um, one, there is, uh, the defenses were, were fine as far as defenses go. There's, there's a fence, it goes underground. There's an underground barrier because we discovered they could dig tunnels. And I've written about this. If you, if you Google things that I've written, you know, I kind of, uh, it was, it was a bit of a tongue in cheek analysis that every time they come up with some kind of, uh, offensive, uh, creative offensive solution to try to attack us, we come up with a high tech 
solution to neutralize it. And they keep going lower tech and, and you know, to the point where they were uh, launching balloons with incendiary bombs and burning down thousands of acres of agricultural fields, um, almost to the point of, of you know, the, the ludicrous. Um, this was anything but. They went, um, they went very sophisticated. And, and, and what it turns out is since the last major war with Hamas three years ago, Turns out that they had been planning an unbelievably sophisticated operation and employing a very, very deft uh, kind of psychological warfare misinformation campaign. Um, we had become over-reliant on the technological side of this border defense. The border, de- the border the, the fence is smart. You, you're supposed to know when anyone touches it, if an animal touches it, if anyone's getting near it. Okay. Uh, we built underground barriers going going tens of meters underground to ensure that they don't dig tunnels like they did um, w- when I wrote uh, a series of articles and analytical articles about this. Okay. Um, then they started protesting on the fence, uh, sending snipers, sending balloons over, et cetera. The rockets, we devised the Iron Dome, which is incredibly, the, maybe the, the most advanced military solution to anything in the world. And it's been largely effective. Um, so we kind of had this technological sense that the the border fence is impervious uh secondly though and and i think this is the most important one there was a conceptual failure and now we're starting to talk about ha conceptia conceptual failure in which in which the the idea of the intelligence establishment and again i was one of the you know the the talking heads on tv and 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 who backed this up as did a lot of my very very much more serious friends i don't i do not consider myself a gaza expert or hamas expert and i can tell you that my hamas expert friends were also uh uh, uh saying this um we had developed a, a conceptual paradigm that hamas was moving towards not ideological but pragmatic moderation in the sense that they were finally, they had been the, they, you know, I, I want to take a step back. 2005, um, most of our listeners will probably know this, but many might not because we have listeners literally all over the world. And now I see friends from around the Arab world and, and from Pakistan joining. Um, we we left Gaza, right? Um, and, and a year after we left Gaza, Gaza in 2005, we being, being the state of Israel, um, Hamas conducted a bloody coup d'etat and threw out the Palestinian Authority, threw out the PLO, uh, using a lot of the same tactics that we, we saw the last couple of days. Uh, brutal murders, just absolutely brutal murders, um, and took over and became the, the governors, the, the administrators, the de facto state of Gaza. Everyone, all the talking military genius heads, and again, I'm not separating myself from them. I'm not saying I'm a genius. I'm saying I was with them in the in the wrong paradigm mm-hmm. hamas is heading towards de facto state de facto governance they want um quiet they want stability they need cash flow they need electricity they need water they need jobs um and, and proof of this for us was in the last few rounds of fighting it was islamic jihad um and all the intelligence showed that hamas was not only against what they were doing they were staying out of it and they were actually a- acting as the responsible adult in the room um, as it turns out, that seems to be a huge and long misinformation campaign to lull us into a sense of security to leave remote 
defenses without, um, without what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh, what's vigilance? That? Not vigilance. Uh, uh, redundancy. Okay. When you're doing remote defenses on a border, when you're doing any kind of defenses and security, you need redundancy. Okay, Because what happens if one gets taken out, as it did, you're blind. And that's exactly what happened. You need more troops on the border. They need to be spread out. They need to be ready to jump into action. And the conceptual paradigm was that the North is the hotspot, West Bank is the hotspot, and we've had a, a huge uptick in terror in the West Bank in the last year, uh, last two years. Um, and Gaza is not the challenge right now. Gaza's calm. Uh, there's not a lot of terror coming from Gaza. It's Islamic Jihad and not Hamas. So we can leave a relatively uh, minimal force. We have all of these remote-controlled sensors and cameras and remote-controlled machine guns and all that, and it'll be fine. And turns out that they're a lot smarter than we gave them credit for. They planned a lot better than we gave them credit for. Um, and certainly a lot more brutal than we ever uh, imagined that they could be. I mean, it was a really, really long game. <laughs> they played a long, long game. Uh, it, it's I, I kind of raised my hands at this because it's like, you know, we've had so many conversations about this with so many people this week, and I, I don't really have words for it. But when you're looking at the military, we're talking about compartmentalization of your emotions right. this week. So let's just look right at, at the military and right at what was going on. There will be a lot when this is over. And this will be, you know, this will end oh, yeah. at some point in time. There will be a lot of people who have to answer for how this happened. Um, when you say, I think we've heard a lot of people this week talk about how this is a bigger failure than 1973. Do you agree with that? It's hard for me to judge that. First of all, I wasn't there. Um, in 1973 as far as an intelligence failure as far as the loss of life uh maybe this is an intelligence failure on that on that level um i want to point out something you know i was listening to a different podcast this morning on this issue um you know comparing it to 9-11 comparing it to to, to 73 war uh, you know and the kind of 50 years on the day being surprised on a jewish holiday early in the morning uh, that kind of thing, th that obviously reminds you of it. The intelligence failure obviously reminds you of it, uh, except that the Egyptian army uh, ironically waged the 73 war in order to sue for peace. And I don't think Hamas did this to sue for peace. Um, what we are understanding now is that Hamas did this to spark a major regional war to encourage anybody with any kind of inkling of jihadist motives to come out of the woodwork, to get the whole region, the whole world to turn on Israel, to drag Hezbollah, to drag the West Bank, to drag Israeli Arabs like they managed to do last year into this, um, and to torpedo the, the Abraham Accords and the what was the coming peace with Saudi Arabia. So do you think that it's fair to say that with all of the uh advances that have been re made in the past couple of years in the region towards what we could call, as Shimon Peres once lovingly referred to as the new Middle East, do you think that this is we should, you know, to, something that should have been expected, that the old Middle East will have something to say about the new Middle East in a big way? You know, I was just uh, tr trying to wrap up uh, writing, writing an article on this as we, as we went on air. Um, 
there are signs of this new Middle East that are taking shape. But the weight, the claws of the old sectarian, uh, hyper-aggressive, radical reactionary Middle East kind of clawing its way back, or, or that I guess it never really left, are still there. Um, all you have to do is look at the, uh, and I did an analysis today of the uh, official statements put out by the different countries in the region. And so if you're looking for a bright cloud or bright, you know, silver linings, you can find them. Um, uh, specifically the UAE in Bahrain. Um, you know, Morocco put out kind of a, you know, well, let's stop the violence on all sides kind of statement. But compared to the rest of the region, um, the rest of the region just flat out blamed Israel, attacked Israel, focused only on Israel's airstrikes on Gaza as if it happens in a vacuum. Um without even mentioning, you know, at least a few of the the new countries at least mentioned the need to refrain from harming civilians. They mentioned, um, you know, two countries, as I said, UAE and um, UAE and Bahrain actually went out of their way to blame the, the to blame the escalation on, on Hamas. And, and they didn't say Hamas, they said Palestinian factions um, and, and, and called them out for targeting civilians. But the rest of the region has a long way to go. And after a lot of conversations with people around the region this week, you just realize they're just not getting the information. They're not seeing it. The rest of the world is seeing it. CNN, CNN, this is the first time I can ever remember CNN fairly reporting on a conflict. Uh, and, and I hate to say it, the, the human... For now. For now. For now. Um, for now. Uh, it's, there are signs of hope there are signs of this new Middle East, but what has become clear to me this week is that we have a long way to go. Do you think that behind closed doors or in the background, there's cooperation right now between our new partners around the region? Or Again, do you think if you're talking about the Abraham Accords countries, yes, yes, I think they're working to calm the situation as much as they can. Um, I, I know, you know, again, the UAE and then later Bahrain made the clearest pronouncements blaming the escalation clearly on Hamas. They, they, they support the Palestinian cause. That's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not even against uh, people supporting the Palestinian cause. What, what I'm disappointed in is that too many people around the region and around the world still um, can't seem to differentiate between everyone should be condemning Hamas as a, ter- as a bloodthirsty terrorist organization and that doesn't mean you don't support the Palestinian cause. That's fine. You want to support the Palestinian cause? Amazing. Uh, right. Great. You don't have to be anti-Israel to support the Palestinian cause, but, but that's a little more nuanced than a lot of people are ready for. But even, even for example, in the, in, the, uh, in the graphic that I made for this episode of this podcast, I was careful to not make a graphic of the Israeli and Palestinian flags. I made a graphic of the Israeli and Hamas flags. I, I think that... Anybody who can, and, and we know our listeners can, appreciate nuance uh, should be able to clearly see the difference. And I think that in the days and weeks to come, we'll see those waters muddied uh, quite yeah. quite well. I mean, e- even people that should have, I mean, you think logically, right? I mean, logic kind of goes out the window in these days. But you try to think logically that people like Mahmoud Abbas, who have a vested interest in seeing, I'm sure he thinks about it if he still you know can, uh, you know, the opportunity here for him, uh, 
but he can't even bring himself to condemn the actions of Hamas. No, and I've heard Palestinian official Palestinian spokespeople dragged into condemning. You know, the best they can say is we condemn any uh, harming of civilians. And then this kind of I don't even know where it, I I don't know if they're serious when they say, um, yeah, but Israel does the same thing to the Palestinians constantly, and it's like you can have an issue with the you know the handling of the the ongoing military occupation in the West Bank by, by Israeli troops. No one's getting beheaded. No one's getting raped. The few cases where, where Palestinian terrorists, not civilians, are, are, are you know, executed, uh, uh, you know, you can literally name the cases on one hand, um, and, and they're lumping in, um, they're lumping in innocent bystanders being hurt in gunfires, in, 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 in firefights between militants and Israeli forces as the same thing as what Hamas did. And, and I really don't know. I want to get some Palestinians on the show. We'll try that for next week. Do they really believe that's what the IDF does? Or do they really not believe that that's what Hamas did? And, I, and, and you know, if you at least if you try to go through public statements or what you see on social media, there does not seem to be logical and intellectual consistency or honesty in what you hear from from a lot of these speakers who who jump to condemn Israel and then maybe maybe will say no innocence should be hurt and it's this sort of like mental gymnastics that again i can't tell if they're if they're willfully playing the idiot or or if they forget what they said a minute before and then you know before they go on to what they say um, our friend uh, Sipti Arif, um, who's a wonderful uh, journalist covering the Middle East uh, for, for Pakistani television based in Dubai, asked, how are Arabs in Israel, Arab Israelis reacting? Uh, that's a great question, Arif. Um, Israeli Arabs have been, uh, first of all, quiet on this issue. Um, nobody has come out in support of Hamas. Uh, and and that, that should be said first and foremost. Um, the the head of the Islamist party, uh, Mansour Abbas, came out, denounced the uh, Hamas actions as un-Islamic and called for quiet and restraint uh, and responsibility among Israeli Arabs. I can tell you personally, a lot of the Israeli Arabs I know, including the ones that you met here, Arif, um, have been volunteering nonstop, uh, providing food, providing care packages for, for those in the South. Um, and let's not forget there, uh, first of all, about 100 Israeli Arabs were killed by Hamas. And that number kind of gets swallowed up, including, right. you know, Hamas uh, visibly saw that these are Israeli Muslim Arab Bedouins living in the south, and they executed them just like they executed uh, the Israeli Jews. Right. And I was going to and I was going to actually bring that up that, uh, I, you know, our Facebook feeds are and social media are inundated if you're in the if you're in the Israeli or pro-Israel communities uh, with all kinds of just horrific things, uh, but but some of the things that I've been seeing are also pictures of of Arab victims, right. uh, as, as well, um, including I think uh, Muhammad Dawash's nephew, who was an ambulance driver who happened to be there working at the festival, and he was killed, and, and they actually took his ambulance back to Gaza or something. Um, so I mean that I think that, and unfortunately, that's probably going to be a story uh, or the story of the Israeli Arabs and their involvement as victims is going to be very, 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 uh, uh, how should we say this? It, it won't be something that's featured 
very high in the coverage of this story. No, and, and it and it should be because you know, first of all, their their cities, their villages are getting bombarded just like the Jewish ones. Um, and if you're talking about Bedouin villages, there's nowhere to take cover. Um and 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 they are being targeted. They they know exactly who Hamas is probably better than we do. And um and I think they they want nothing to do with it. Some people are standing up and 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 um condemning Hamas. But again, you know, I, I get it in this part of the world, uh, and I, I wish this paradigm would be broken faster. You gotta be able to walk a line by saying, maybe I don't like the occupation, maybe I don't even agree with Israel's right to exist, fine, but whatever, we can get into that. But to to butcher civilians in their homes, uh, children, children, babies, elderly, kidnapping, beheading, uh, uh, torturing is is just something that that should be roundly condemned. And then, by the way, I see I see Hamas's uh, spokesperson um, the next day coming out and lying about all of this and saying they didn't attack any civilians and they were only attacking the military bases. So choose, is it the Hamas terrorists who were literally videotaping what they were doing? Or is it then the gaslighting that uh, their leadership is doing? Maybe before we get into the, what, what's trying to be per, uh, uh, promulgated right now is one of the greatest gaslighting attempts of all time, uh, you know, akin to the Nazis saying that they didn't kill any Jews. Right. Um, how, how do we sort of understand, um, you know, world, world reaction to this? How do we understand, um, well, even, maybe even before that? When you're talking about gaslighting, this organization is actually videotaping these atrocities, and they're doing so in order to, you know, uh, use it as as propaganda to demoralize uh, Jews and to demoralize Israelis, to demoralize the supporters of Israel, to make them fear uh, this war, to make them maybe less effective when when they fight uh, against them. Um, so, so how can they? How can they? How can they sort of? be at those two places at the same time. Yeah, sure. And and Russell uh, Lord, one of our listeners um, and one of your coworkers mentioned that uh, the, the Bedouin gentleman killed was a paramedic saving lives at this uh, music festival when he himself was killed. Um, that, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, the way I like to explain it is in terms of, of going back to ISIS and exactly what ISIS was doing, right? Why was ISIS showing everything, broadcasting the beheadings live? And I think it's exactly as you said. They were trying to to scare and intimidate um, all of their potential, you know, foes, enemies, the, the next city that they, that they were going to take over. If you can do that to your enemy, if you can spark such fear in public opinion, chaos and fear, you weaken them, you weaken resolve. Um, and I think that's exactly what they were trying to do by by filming and then airing these what are essentially snuff films, right, um, of people being killed, people being brutalized, them laughing and celebrating um, um, with either the, the bodies or, or with the, the kidnapped victims um, and, and coming back to uh, coming back to Gaza to receive the heroes welcomes with people, you know, handing out sweets in the in, in the streets of Gaza. Um, there, there is a deep element that I want to unpack uh, in the coming weeks here of uh, 
that's how a lot of our enemies are deep, deep enemies. This is not a fight over territory. This is not a fight over, uh, you know, more economic rights, or et cetera. We, we talked about Egypt. Egypt instigated the 73 war to be able to go into then the uh, Camp David Accords with a bit of a raised morale, right? Because then they signed the peace treaty in 79, and it's held uh, strong since then without any public support for it. So this is something else. This is how do we cause intimidation and chaos and demoralization, just like you said, uh, uh, for for our enemies, cause them to lose resolve. Um, we're gonna we're gonna scare them before the fight ever even right. starts. And, and that's and, also kind of in this region how you rally people to your side. People rally in this part of the world to whoever they perceive to be the stronger side. And it's and I would also say that it goes part and parcel as to how wars are being fought in the 21st century in the age of social media and the age of technology. We see this in Ukraine with with how the enemy or how the Ukrainian both sides are are using uh, the the presence of social media uh, and, and, and services like Telegram. Uh, to to sort of spread messages, narratives, and propaganda, and 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 we're seeing that now here. Uh, and and you know, look, I'm not at all comparing us to them, but I mean, we're doing it as well. We're we're making sure that we're out there talking about our message. They're doing it their way, but their way is actually weaponizing this this uh, this medium. Right. Um, you know, many people will be shocked to hear that uh, the, the government in Israel uh, has been telling parents to sort of delete. Uh, social media from their children's devices, because in the days and weeks to come, Hamas may, or it will be you know, highly likely that they'll be uh, sort of using uh, uh, kidnapped people's Facebook live streams, perhaps to to sort of make pleas or to show what's going on. And that will go right into the hands, literally into the hands of children uh, throughout Israel. And, 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 you know, we don't need to talk about what that might do to them. Uh, because as adults, we've all seen these videos this week, and then we've see, seen things that we can no longer unsee. Um, you know, just as a sidebar, uh, when my friend Steve Sotloff was murdered, they made a video, and a lot of people around the world have seen that video. I, to this day, refuse to watch that video because I can't bring murdered myself by, to do it. By ISIS in in Syria, for those who are not aware, right? Uh, so, so I can't I can't bring myself to see those videos, but I I can choose to do that because when that happened. Steve didn't have a phone with Facebook Live. They couldn't just broadcast it. They had they made a video and you'd have to sort of see the video or find the video. I could search for it. Whereas now I just open up this, you know, this phone and it's like, boom, it's right there. There's a short video or there's a story or there's a something where I'm scrolling and it's just bot. So I can't, you know, if, if I don't want to see any of this, I just have to not pick up my phone or not go not go into these apps. And I think that our children aren't necessarily adept to knowing how to do that, especially if they don't know to the full extent of what's going on. Um, so, so there's that. Um, I, I do want to maybe shift and, and talk for a second about world reaction, uh, because uh, you know my, my my perspective here in this country uh, going through this has been both altogether bizarre to watch this from afar, understanding from a deep personal place what's going on back back in Israel, but also uh, in in many ways bizarre because in Israel for many 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 years you're used to this sort of understanding or narrative uh, that. When there is conflict, that many people in the world are are against us, or they're uh, not seeing all the facts, or if they are, they're choosing to be very neutral, or they're choosing to be uh, wishy washy about it. And 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 as soon as this happened, the outpouring of support, and I can just go through a couple of examples in my own personal life that you might be interested to hear about, um, whether it was 
uh, going to a community-wide solidarity event put on here by the Jewish community, uh, which I thought in, in, in my sort of ignorant mind that would be just a gathering of Jews in a synagogue. Maybe you'd get, you know, a full capacity crowd and then driving to get there. And there was a traffic jam, literally a traffic jam. And I thought to myself in the car, this can't be for this. And, the, and it was, and there was no parking. And there was a line that went out around the parking lot of about 1,500 people, which were not allowed to enter the building because it was capacity. Uh, and, and, and I was able to get into the building. Uh, and then, and then the governor was there, and all kinds of people from the state, and 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 the senator was, you know, the national level senator, Amy, Amy Klobuchar was there, um, and then and then hearing what the governor had to say, uh, and, and his line for the evening, of course, this is a man who is not really a career politician. He's 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 a social studies teacher and a football coach and a military man. You know, his major line was basically, uh, if you woke up on Saturday morning and turned on the TV and had to think about which side you might be on, you better go get your head checked. Um, which which is which is great, and then immediately afterwards, uh, the, the, him ordering all of the states, uh, state and and U.S. flags to be at half mast for the duration of this, as well as uh, you know many buildings in the downtown area being lit up blue and white, and that's just here. And I live in you know Minneapolis, Minnesota, so what? So it's like you see that in New York, you're seeing that in L.A., you're seeing that across the world, you're seeing that in London and in, in European capitals, which is like you know totally bizarre. Um, I was at an urgent care facility with my with my father-in-law and we, somebody found out that we were from Israel and they wanted to give us lunch. Um, I was, uh, you know, uh, school districts are writing uh, letters of support uh, for children that might be going through this. Um, my neighbors uh, have a Facebook group for the neighborhood and they were posting that they were going to be making I stand with Israel signs, just like they have I stand with Ukraine signs. Um, and these are not Jewish people, most of who have never maybe, you know, thought about Israel or have never been to Israel and they and they feel this. Um, and 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 just seeing that sort of support is is quite overwhelming in terms of the emotional response for us as Israelis seeing here and seeing that the community is actually really standing by our side when living in Israel all these years. And, and this is especially poignant for for my wife, Mayan, you know, you think that people are going to be against you and you think that you're going to be alone. And then you see that the community comes out and hugs you and supports you and it really gives you energy. Um, and we're going to need this energy because this is not going to be a, a you know a week long thing with an Egyptian brokered ceasefire at the end. So uh, you know that's that's good. But something that also needs to be said is that Israel has not yet. I Benny, I've got an alarm. You can hear it. And I have to run to the bomb shelter. You run to the bomb shelter. I will stay. You here keep going and keep and keep going. Go, Dan. Uh, as Dan goes to the shelter, um, quite slowly, I have to say, Dan. Uh, when you when you come back, we'll tell that to you. Uh, I wish we we could hear that so you would understand, but this is the reality of this show. Um, so so just in general, if I can keep talking about this for a little bit, seeing those sort of displays of solidarity here in the community are are, are amazing. Um, they're great, uh, but you know make no make no mistake. I think that uh, Israel has yet to really formally uh, act. We we keep talking about the scale of the operation that will be mounted, and we're not sure when that will begin. But I'm sure that public opinion will turn. When this has happened uh, today across the world, the the enemies of the Jewish people have declared a day of rage. Uh, many uh, Jewish institutions around around Europe, for example, have, have closed their doors for the day out of uh, uh, care to protect their, uh, their their the people that use the facilities from any harm harm doing harm or wrongdoing. Uh, here in the United States, there's an up uh, heightened sense of vigilance uh, as to what is possible. Uh, however, you know. 
some of the local law enforcement were very keen to mention that there's no concrete threats uh, known at this time anywhere in the United States. But of course, we have seen demonstrations by people that are pro-Hamas here in the United States across major cities, uh, which, which really, you know, we have to think about that. And I think that um, it, it's definitely something that gives me pause as you drive around your home, that there are people in any major Western city who will not see this in the same light that you do. And they, quite frankly, um, you know, may support the the other side, the enemy, uh, whatever you want to, want to call it. Uh, and uh, Dan, Dan's actually writing to us now in the comments, which I think is interesting. It's the first time that's happened in a podcast. He says, you might be able to hear the Iron Dome interception of a missed neighborhood. Sorry, you might be able to hear the Iron Dome interception over my neighborhood of a Hamas missile. I'm going to be quiet for a second. I don't hear it, uh, but uh, maybe we'll have to check our microphone because it could be that it's just not being picked up. Um, when when these things do go off, uh, what what typically happens is, and if you live in Rehovo, the area where Dan lives, and I used to live in Gadara, which is around the same distance more or less from, from, from Aza, you have about 45 seconds uh, from the time that the, uh, that the red alert uh, or the, the uh, nowadays it's not so much red alert, it's just a siren, uh, or that the notice goes on television. When you're watching TV, it comes up on the right-hand screen. There's a yellow uh, bar that comes down, which says the areas of which are uh, under attack or being affected. Um, and each area, you know how much time you might have to get to your shelter or to get to your safe room or to get to your stairwell or wherever it is that you go. Or if you're driving a car, you know, God forbid, you know, pull over to the side of the road and uh, get out and, and take cover uh, away from your car. Um, uh, so you know how much time you might have. And then, and then you sort of wait and, and then you'll hear, uh, you may not hear the rocket itself uh, as it goes through the air, but you'll definitely hear the launch of Israel's Iron Dome uh, batteries, which fire what are called Tamir missiles. Uh, and these missiles, of course, have great uh, technology in them that are designed to understand the trajectory of the uh, of the missile or the rocket as it leaves the area from which it was launched. It meets it in the air uh, and it, uh, it eliminates the missile in the air. It's a very loud sound when they're launched. Um, of course, it's a rocket uh, and it, it will take it out, uh, hopefully, in, in the air. And then you can hear the explosion because these rockets that are fired from the Gaza Strip or these missiles carry uh, carry uh, a lot of um, explosive power to them uh, in, in, in them. Um, they're not just a, a projectile. They, they also have uh, explosives uh, in them. Uh, so uh, what, what happens when these when these sort of uh, rocket attacks are are launched? are that uh, Hamas will try to, uh, understanding that the Iron Dome will be effective in around 90% of the cases, they try to overwhelm the systems by launching uh, enough rockets such that the system cannot effectively eliminate all of them. Uh, this is especially true in a time of war such as this, when a lot of the Iron Dome systems are placed not necessarily only around civilian areas, but also around sensitive military installations and uh, necessary uh, or important sites of infrastructure, such as uh, desalinization plants, airports, uh, large weapons depots, these sorts of things that are strategic uh, in terms of their value. Uh, that, of course, takes away from the ability of those systems to also effectively uh, cover the cities um, as, as they, as they you know, act. Uh, so we have to be very aware of that. And I think the people in Israel, like Dan right now, 
uh, understand that. And, and that's why, uh, you know, obviously you have to go and, and find shelter. And if anybody's listening to this in Israel, definitely uh, make sure, of course, you know this, but, you know, make sure that you're near a shelter. Uh, and, and as you listen to this from afar here in the United States, understand that this is what's going on all day. Uh, people are sitting at home. They're trying to do their work. They're trying to take care of their kids. They're trying to go about their business outside uh, and, and, and walk around uh, and maybe do a little bit of shopping before Shabbat or maybe try to do a little bit of volunteering to help uh, the war effort. And, and you know, throughout their day, there are these sort of pauses uh, that make people go uh, towards a shelter. Um, look, for, for over a decade, we've now been used to these sort of uh, Iron Dome missile scenarios. Uh, and I think that it's part of, and we can talk about this when Dan gets back, but it's part of how maybe some of this complacency set in. But make no mistake, you know, when we talk about Hamas war crimes, uh, firing of, of, of offensive weapons upon civilian populations, such as happening across Israel right now, as normal as it's become in Israel, and as much as people in the past did not necessarily think that it was uh, the most frightening moment because of the Iron Dome, uh, although still very frightening, uh, they, they are war crimes. Uh, and I've heard somebody yesterday who I was speaking to talk about how uh, they were, you know, being, a, being uh, not, not say evacuated, but they, they, they were able to leave Israel and they reached a destination in Europe and there were people there from the, from the, from the police or from Interpol and they wanted to sort of ask them about possible war crimes that were taking place. Um, and and it didn't didn't even pop into their mind, you know, to say that uh, that that they were also the victim of a war crime because they went through rocket attacks. But yes, these are these are war crimes. Uh, you go about your daily life in Israel. You could be a person like me. You could be a person like Dan. You could be a person that works in a bakery or a bus driver or a preschool teacher. It doesn't matter. And uh, and and you have nothing to do with anything. You're not a policymaker. You're not a soldier in the military you're, you're just a regular guy regular girl and and all of a sudden these things happen and you're and you're the victim of them and your children are the victim of them and i will never forgive hamas for the fact that my eight-year-old and my six-year-old understand uh the things that they understand about the evil in this world you know uh the the, the fact that their their innocence has to be taken from them at such an early age because of the realities of the place that they grew up is quite frankly something that is unforgivable um you know i uh you know, a lot of people, especially here in the States, will say to me, well, what do you, how do you talk about this with your children? And essentially I can say to them, I don't really need to hide anything from them because they know what's going on. They hear about it uh, and they've been through it. Um, and, and, you know, they're asking us, how do we sort of talk about this with our families or our children? I see that Dan is, is back. We'll give him a second to put his, his headgear on and then I'll bring him up to speed. Uh, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Any news? Uh, direct hit in Rehovot, where I live. Do you know where? Yeah, not far from here. Okay. Uh, we, of course, won't give uh, direct uh, and, and specific address because we don't want to divulge uh, where things are exactly going, but that's a very scary situation. Dan, as, as you were away, I was explaining to uh, I was explaining to our listeners what goes on during an, during an Iron Dome uh, interception. I was talking about the the sort of atmosphere that takes place in a community when a, when an, uh, an attack goes on. I was explaining also about how people in the past decade have maybe become a little bit complacent and don't think about this this way. But what you just went through was a war crime. Uh, a launch of an offensive weapon on a civilian community is a war crime. Uh, and and it's it needs. What are you to talking be said. about? It never happened. 
They never, never happened. attack civilians. Never attack civilians. Uh, of course, they would say that you're not civilians, that the Israeli population all serves in the reserves, and therefore you're all fair game, including children who will grow up to go to the army. Mm. Uh, so so it's all fair game, right? Um, but uh, the, the fact that Deanna shared with us that the, the rocket uh, hit a building uh, means that in this particular case, the Iron Dome, for whatever reason, was not able to intercept the, the incoming uh, missile or rocket. Um, it, it needs to be said also, Dan, we were talking about before how uh, during times of war, the, the IDF will, uh, will position Iron Dome batteries primarily or give priority to protecting strategic installations such as military bases, uh, infrastructure, these sorts of things. And, and, and therefore, maybe civilian communities have a little bit less coverage or impacted coverage. So it may be that that's what happened here. Uh, it, it could also just be that this is one of those you know times where- It's one of the few that, that we'll get through. They get through. But, I mean, the but, but, Iron Dome is 90-something percent effective, but when right. you, you have 5,000 rockets fired, a few will, will manage to get through the- Right. To get through this. And, and, and of course, there's also tactics that they can use, like if they launch many rockets at right. once, they can overwhelm the system. I don't think that that was the case right now. Was it? I don't know. Um, as I was in the bomb shelter, um, I started getting phone calls and text messages from people in Israel asking how I am, which is, you know, usually when a lot of people get uh, rockets, uh, uh, kind of all in this together, but apparently because a direct building was hit really not far from our house, um, then, then people realized that and were calling uh, to check up on us, which, uh, which we appreciate. So we've had a couple of questions while, while, uh, while you were away. Uh, Russell Lord has asked, for how long can the King of Jordan walk on his tightrope, constantly speaking against Israel publicly to placate his population instead of saying things as they are, educating his population to facts instead of sticking to the same old rhetoric? So maybe that's a good sort of uh, a way to, to sort of step into the morass of world reaction and how it's being portrayed in, in different countries, because we shared a little bit about how it was positively from our perspective being uh, right. being supported here in the U.S., but of course, in other countries in the world, that's not the case. And Jordan well, especially is an interesting. Uh, so so uh, so the, the Washington Institute put out a really good uh, overview and analysis of what every Arab country uh, said. Um, and, and we kind of touched on this, but the, um, the, the responses from, from Jordan, from Egypt, the countries that border us that, A, first of all, should know better, B, that maybe uh, on the official government level dislike Hamas as much as we do um, and, and are threatened by them, um, and they should know what's going on too. They put out complete condemnations only of Israel, not even mentioning the civilian you know, casualties or, or civilian targeting here in Israel. Um, Russell, that is something that I have thought about, asked, said, including to many of my Arab friends for so long. I am of the opinion that, and by the way, you know, my day job is to try to bring uh, people who are open-minded, fair, reasonable uh, influencers from around the Arab world and beyond in Muslim communities to Israel just to see for themselves and, and the, the, the shock, the eye-opening. And if, if those of you here who are, who are on the feed uh, right now, like, like Arif, who are watching, can, can attest to this maybe live on the, on the talkback section, the, the eye-opening effect of just coming here and seeing things for yourself. Again, nobody ever claiming Israel's perfect, nobody claiming Israel never did anything wrong. 
in its in its existence. Um, you know, and I'm the first, and I'm always the first to say, I'm not sure in the last 15 years or certainly the last 10 years, Israel has really made efforts at, at peacefully solving the the Palestinian issue. I'm talking about the West Bank, not Gaza. Um, and, and yet, people are just so the the massive misinformation and a lot of it official because these are state controlled channels and the official messaging is just so uh, uh night and day compared to what's actually happening on the ground that i think if people were to to be allowed to watch what was really happening and get fair analysis and get is you know what get israeli analysts to debate uh, uh arab or palestinian analysts live on tv opinions would change maybe not overnight but within the course of a week because the gap between reality, and again, I'm not talking about the Israeli narrative, the gap between reality and what they are fed is so deep that uh, it, it's shocking to me. It's, it's really shocking to me. Um, I don't know why the countries that have peace with Israel, that understand what's going on here, haven't done this in, in just a rip the bandaid off kind of mode. Um, they continue to, to, to feed this kind of garbage, you know, public line, uh, uh, kowtowing to the extremists, uh, just not refusing to, to explain the reality on the ground. Um, and, and I don't know why. Um, I don't know why they don't do it. Um, you know, wh- when the countries that signed the Abraham Accords in Morocco did so, I won't say it was popular. I don't even say it was extremely popular in their countries. But look where we are now, not now, think- but now you know, in this time period, three years later versus where we were at the beginning, there were no mass protests. Uh, public opinion is slowly and gradually growing. People are starting to understand. People are starting to travel. And, and you know, there's a sense of, of creeping normalization in the region. That's a good thing. So I'll, I'll ask a devil's advocate type question, which I would never have asked before, but in the light of this event, it must be asked. Do you think that Jordan's playing a long game? Who knows? I think, I don't know. I think the Jordanian regime is so insecure uh, that, that maybe it's it's just trying to stay afloat in its own survival within its own country. And I think that might be more the case um, than anything else. Um, I mean, look, I mean, we, we, we mentioned a little bit before about the support that Israel's seen across the world right now. But but like, you know, if we're mentioning support, we also must mention the detractors and, and those that are out there. I mean, we've seen sort of very, very, very violent uh, demonstrations in places like New York and places like London of, of people coming out. And I mean, they're not hiding it anymore. There's nothing oh, no. to hide. It's, kill it's, the Jews. It's, they're saying kill, the, kill Jews. the Jews, gas the Jews, these, the these Jews. sorts of things. Um, and and the feeling over here is that we're now in this sort of reality of us versus them, and yeah, and people are taking measures into their own hands and that sort of thing. So you, you know, I was I was, and that's not even before we talk about progressive leftists. I'm I'm literally talking I, about. People I, I want I want to bring in the radical left into this and the kind of you know those who uh, play moral and mental gymnastics to try to bring in you know post colonial post nationalist theory into justifying the you know i was watching a debate yesterday between cornell west and alan dershowitz on uh, on some talk show i think pierce morgan and, and or, or you know one of those talk shows and, and i was just like you know he's i'm not justifying and all violence against civilians is wrong but we have to look at the context of the years of occupation and, and i'm like 
dude, they're they're lobbing heads off of babies. Like you really, you know, first of all, the 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 facts just don't add up to to that narrative, and they don't want to they don't want to look at the facts. They don't want to look at the historical analysis. Hence the gaslighting on, on Hence, TV. It's just but... massive gaslighting. Um, you know, I was watching Mustafa Barghouti, who's a doctor, and he's a very well-spoken and very calm and rational man. And, and you know, he's not official. Um, and he's... He, this is the uh, the the uh, founder of the BDS movement. Uh, no, I think it's a different Mustafa Barghouti. Different but, Mustafa Barghouti. Different no, no. Mustafa Barghouti, but, but uh, you know, a Palestinian intellectual um who calls for nonviolence i'll give him that um but but completely just papering over ignoring these hamas war crimes um um you know ignoring hamas that is committed to to war and, and you know i kind of want to unpack this benny because sure. this is something that has been so frustrating um to those of us watching it over here and i'm sure many of our friends across the world and and you mentioned you know new york uh london sydney australia um, uh, I, I was talking to a colleague in San Diego and she said there was an unbelievably violent, violent anti-Israel protest, uh, in, um, in, in San Diego of all places. And she said there, the Palestinian community is very loud and aggressive and, um, not even willing to dialogue or, or discuss or, or anything. They, this is, this is a movement that is fed and fueled and coddled by the, the, the radical ultra progressive left. I don't mean liberals, I don't mean democrats, so don't take me to that place. I mean the radical marxist ultra progressive left which kind of gives intellectual cover. And I've never understood, I mean maybe I can. I've never understood how they can give such intellectual cover to the atrocities of the worst genocidal islamists uh, uh on earth. And uh and they do with this mental gymnastics of post colonialism Maybe you can hear the uh, fighter jets now taking off. We live, uh, uh, your old house and my current house are not far from a major airbase here. Equal distance from Telnof Airbase. Correct. So I can hear the uh, fighter jets uh, throughout the day flying back and forth um, as, I sit, as I sit here on my balcony. Yeah, Russ, uh, Russell Lord, by the way, who's a, a mutual friend of ours and a colleague, has just mentioned, did, did you hear Bernie Sanders? Uh, of course, I did not. So Bernie, Bernie Sanders basically. I'm not getting all these comments. Where are you getting them? In the comments. Oh. Look in the comments. Uh, Bernie Bernie Sanders, who's you know a, a formal two-time presidential candidate, uh, basically made comments to the effect of this that you know this is not happening in the vacuum, and while we you know mourn the loss of uh, innocent civilian life, one must understand that Israel is you know Gaza is an open-air prison. It's been under siege for the past you know x amount of years, and and they're not having water and collective punishment, and this will only make things worse. And blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's Bernie, so it's like blah 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 blah. blah. Um, in response to my earlier question, Arif, who, who again is a, a wonderful Pakistani journalist and analyst, said, uh, "Unfortunately, common people, including so-called Middle East experts, have never been uh, here." And they don't have direct information and experience of the region. So they're consuming propaganda over the last seven to eight decades. That's really what it is. And, and connecting it back to what Russell asked or said, you know, these governments, I believe, could turn the tide overnight. Uh, look at the UAE now. Look at the UAE. I was getting nothing but, but messages of support from the UAE all week. Messages of why don't you guys just finish off Hamas? Um, take care of this already. Um, because 
there is a way to do it. And just a lot of these regimes are just aren't willing to do it. And I don't think for a second they believe in Hamas. I don't think for a second they believe in what Hamas is spewing. I think they're just as terrified of the Islamists uh, as we are. They know what ISIS is. They're the ones who dealt with ISIS, not us. Uh, and uh, and with Al-Qaeda before that. Right. Um, can, I, can I say something, though, uh, to, yeah. to, to, to Arif's point, and, and maybe this can steer us in a direction? I, I think it's it's that, but I think like many things with, with nuance, I think there's another aspect of it, of it as well, which, which sort of needs to be addressed, which is that I think pervasive in the West, um, especially if we look at, you know, the response to 9-11 and, and regime change and spreading democracy and things like that is that there's a, there's a precept here in the West that people around the world at the very basic level are just like you and me. They want prosperity. They want a good life. They want to have safety and security for their children. Want, you know, uh, food, abundance, and 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 freedom at the end of the day. And that if they're reacting towards us or doing things even as atrocious as these atrocities were, it's it has to be. There's got to be a justification. It has to be in response to some sort of a legitimate grievance. It can't just be that. There's just unmitigated evil uh, that that just pervasive in, in the region, and, and in reality, and then this comes back to Arif's comment, and, and I'll say too, when you live in the region or when you when you have experience of a firsthand understanding of, of of many of the peoples of the region, it's not it's not true. Unfortunately, there are people in the region. It's not just that they think different things than you. It's that they're inhabiting a different reality. Correct. That, I think that's the point. Well, first of all, I think that's one point. And, and you know, we've talked a lot about uh, um, the role of perception in shaping reality. So if you, if you, Benny, just turn off Western news and Israeli news and just watch Al Jazeera all day long, you're going to have a very different view of reality than if I only watch Israeli news than someone who's only watching you know, CNN or BBC. Uh, and, and what we see, first of all, shapes our perception of reality. There is real truth in this world, but that doesn't mean that everybody's living on the same plane of, of existence at the same time, right? Uh, you know, th- what this is supposed to be the job of, of analysts and, and, and researchers to be able to look at, okay, I'm going to watch Israeli news, and then I'm going to look at American news and British news and Arab news and Palestinian news. And I'm going to look at, you know, different sources and I'm going to compare and contrast. And, and that's the job of analysts and researchers. Yes. And I welcome, uh, as we do this, I welcome people from I, additional parts of friends uh, from different parts of the Arab world who, who are tuning in. And I would, again, those, of, all those of you who are watching uh, live are encouraged, please, to share the live feed on your social media. And you are welcome to ask questions and leave comments. Uh, and, and we'll try to to engage with them. That's uh, one thing, Benny. But to your point, I think your point might be even deeper, because first of all, there is there there is evil in this world. There are people who who re, you know to kind of go back to the Joker and Batman who really enjoy watching the world burn. Um, but there are people who who and right. groups. There are ideological, politically backed groups, and these groups are backed by Iran. These groups are the various jihadist Salafist groups around the Middle East. Um, uh, Hamas is definitely one of them. Hezbollah is definitely one of them. Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all, all of these different groups, right? Um, who they will sacrifice. No, no action is too brutal 
and no civilian is off the table to achieve their greater goals. They're kind of uh, messianic goals, which only a conflict will achieve, the bloodiest conflict imaginable, because that's how you get the so-called corrupting Western influences out of here. That is how you, you get the Jews out of here. That's how you get American influence out of the Middle East. Um, and, and you know, uh, you don't even have to look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You can look at the vast majority of people killed by, by jihadists around the Middle East are other Muslims, the, those who are trying to live a normal life and just have a job and an education. And, and, and I do think from, from, from doing what I've done the last few years, and, and just reading about the Middle East for the last 20 years, I really do think the vast majority of Middle Easterners really do just want a peaceful life and an economy. However, they have let their societies, and the Abraham Accords countries are the exception, they have let their societies be ruled either officially, politically, or at least on the social level by those who have a very different vision of what reality should look like and the ones who really do want conflict and war and death and destruction. And, so, and that's so, what Hamas wants. So let me let me let me sort of add this, uh, and and I apologize for thinking out loud. Some of our classic listeners will understand that sometimes my thoughts are put together <laughs> on air. That's, that's how we roll. Um, so I've been getting these messages from uh, you know school districts. Uh, the, the the Jewish Federation here published you know a list of uh, official responses from school districts. And this morning I got one from the school district that my kids are in, and and. What I'm about to say is sort of help me, Dan, if you will, understand, given the reality of the fact that sometimes it's not about grievances and rationality and that all people are thinking in the same way and that there really is true evil and we need to defeat it wherever it is, hmm. such as the Americans knew how to do with ISIS or, or the Nazis uh, or the Nazis. And then and then I'll get a message like from a school district that says something like this. Basically, this, the gist of it is, you know, we abhor the loss of life on both sides, on both sides. And, uh, and not to say that I don't abhor the loss of life on both sides, but that's the totality of the message, right. Right. that there's a war, people are dying on both sides, there's no mention of evil, talk to your children about evil, there's not any, any mention of we need to rally around this because there are forces of good and forces of darkness and we need right. to sort of, you know, eliminate you sides here. And, and you have to choose sides. It's the sort of neutrality that they have to play because they're a public school district and they have kids from all over the world and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and, and I think that as a, the global West, we're in a, whether you want to be or not, you're in a, a sort of civilizational clash. And if you want the West to prosper and survive, not for the next five years or 10 years, but for the next 100 years, 200 years, you have to understand what Israelis understand, which is that sometimes there's good and evil, and you have to eliminate evil, and it doesn't have any rationality. Sometimes it just wants to kill Jews because they're Jews. It, it might I, have a rationality, but as I said, that, that, that rationality is sparking World War III. That's the rationality, right? Correct. And, and as this continues to unspiral and unfold, what concerns me is that there, the support that we're seeing right now in the West around Israel will erode because it's based on this sort of almost ignorance of, you know, everything is equal. Yes, right now we're responding to the, to the you know, size of the atrocities. But once we start seeing things on the other side, we won't be able to because we have to equally support innocent life. And So, so that's, that's a really good point. And I want to unpack this because a lot of people, um, a lot of people who I, th I think are, are fair and sensible, intelligent people 
don't know how to approach this and they they maybe instinctively they do but but then they feel pressured by those kind of you know those the i call it you know maybe maybe uh, uh, cowardly neutrality right we, we deplore civilian loss of lives on all sides by by the way i don't want anyone to understand that that we we as israelis me as an individual we as jewans take pr- pride or pleasure in any palestinian civilian that gets hurt as a course of of these ongoing conflicts um far 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 from it um this was you know the kind of debate that i watched with with cornell west and alan dershowitz this is the kind of thing you see from a lot of the school boards and the university boards um and it's kind of this like tiptoeing line of 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 not willing to take a moral claim and here you have to because if you don't this is you know people talk about the cycle of violence right they say why can't this just end it can end when when it's clear how to end a how to end a cycle of violence if one side compromises x percent and the other side compromises y percent and they can meet somewhere in a in a, in a in a realistic middle then you can end a cycle of violence but when one side withdraws completely and then puts up a fence and say okay this is our fence don't cross it and the other side repeatedly tries to cross that fence to the point then of of literally genocide and 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 the worst human rights atrocities possible with no other goal than to spark world war 3 it is it is morally reprehensible to stick to that we we call out you know uh also it's basically it's, you're comparing the idf to hamas and that's what i hear from a lot of people a lot of people who are saying i deplore the idf as much as hamas First of all, uh, I, I can tell you, having served in the parts of the army that dealt with foreign militaries, I can tell you, uh, having advanced degrees in comparative military history and strategy, um, I'm not going to say the IDF is perfect. I'm not going to say every IDF soldier is an absolute angel. Uh, far from it. But comparatively, when you look at actual humans and how actual humans act in actual wars, the IDF is one of the most moral and one of the, maybe not the most, it's hard to say that, but one of the most moral and clean militaries, uh, certainly today on the face of this earth. And I almost laughed as I walked up the stairs and I saw that Putin issued a statement saying that if Israel invades Gaza, there's going to be such a loss of, of human life. Um, I think that Erdogan made the same statement as well, which is also right. laughable considering. Considering how many civilians in Syria and, and in Libya and in in Ukraine, uh, conflicts that have nothing to do with either of those countries, right? Uh, um, uh, that that those uh, dictators have have uh, have killed. Um, there is good and there is bad, and you cannot compare uh, an Israeli civilian deliberately targeted and murdered, sitting in his home, out of the blue. Versus those who are unfortunately, unfortunately killed in Israeli airstrikes that are targeting Hamas installations. And the IDF is warning the people of those buildings to get out there, telling Palestinians, go to South Gaza. We are not striking South Gaza. We are striking North Gaza. They're so, so their- can, I, can I pause you right there for a second? Because that's actually being talked about today here in the United States. It should be. A lot of different media. No, they're, they're not reporting it in a positive fashion. They're oh. saying Israel is itself committing a war crime that it would displace and can and and sort of the, they're painting it as if we're doing population transfer. Right, right. Look, 
this is one of these things that people who just don't understand how war works. And sometimes a war is forced on you, right? When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that was not a war. The U.S. was trying to stay out of that war for four four out of the five years, right? Uh, You know, sometimes a war is forced upon you. And that is something that people don't understand. Okay, and then then they go back to the mental gymnastics of the ongoing occupation. I say, what ongoing occupation? In the West Bank, there is an ongoing occupation, not in Gaza. I'm sorry, you know, and and somebody uh, on the feed, uh, my father, Bob Pfefferman, said, important to discuss the false claims of Gaza being an open-air prison. Um, there, Israel left Gaza with every last settler and soldier in 2005, handed the keys to the Palestinians and said, please turn this into a Singapore, turn this into, um, please, please turn this into an economic hub, turn this into a Hong Kong of the Middle East, turn this into a resort destination. And instead, we have where we have now. Um, the the naval blockade around Gaza happened only in 2007 because of repeated Iranian arms transfers and arms smuggling into Gaza. The one thing people don't understand is Gaza has its own border that is not controlled by Israel with Egypt. Nobody seems to mention it. The, I think the Egyptians are fine with it not being mentioned. And something that our good friend, our mutual friend, uh, Grisha Yakubovich, who's one of the top experts on Gaza, uh, uh, retired colonel, mentioned um, just recently, you know, we're not even, people say, well, you, you cut off all the uh, water and electricity to Gaza. No, Israel didn't, because Israel doesn't supply all of the water and all of the electricity to Gaza. It supplies about 10% of the electricity um, and, and about half of the water to Gaza. I might have those numbers reversed. Um, so the Hamas in Gaza could have repeatedly chosen a different path. It was given every opportunity. It's still given every opportunity to choose a different path, and it keeps choosing the path of war. And it's dragging it's it's dragging Israel now to the point where Israel doesn't have a choice. You said, you know, we're going to keep having these rounds, a week of fighting, Egyptian mediation, ceasefire. Okay, we're in a different place now. When when they come across the border and go house by house, massacring families and raping women and kidnapping children. And, and murdering children, you are le- Israel is left with no choice but to respond to this evil, as you put it, this just unprecedented evil in its face. Because this this is not, sorry, friends in America who are listening, or friends in, you know elsewhere, this is not a, a theoretical threat half a world away. This is literally in our homes, and Israel has no choice but to respond with overwhelming force and, and at the very least completely take out Hamas's military capabilities at the most and Hamas's rule over Gaza. And it's going to be messy. It's going to be very messy. And I have absolutely no joy in saying this. So let's, let's talk for a second. This, you know, I think we've, we've laid out what's going on in the country relatively well here and, and how, People are thinking about it and how we think about it. Let's talk about sort of where this goes from here in terms of different scenarios. And I think that as as a starting point, we can talk about how uh, truly one of the most unprecedented aspects of this operation thus far has been uh, Western military involvement uh, in in terms of uh, we can talk about the United States upping its its uh, 
its presence in the region via the presence of uh, of the Gerald R. Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group repositioning to being off the off the coast of, uh, I believe, Cyprus uh, near Lebanon. Uh, just yesterday, two British British ships uh, were announced to be joining. The Greek Navy was put on alert, and many of them joined the flotilla, uh, as well as uh, I think quite clearly and one of the most, uh, to me at least, um, you know, telling signs of where this could be going. Uh, NATO Standing Maritime Group Two uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean as well, which is a group of about you know six or seven different strike force uh, frigates um, that that would go to the area that are made up of an international coalition. Uh, Italy, France, Germany, uh, the UK, the United States, and Greece. Um, and then I apologize if I've missed anybody there, the NATO participation. But uh, it's an unprecedented amount of fire, firepower in the region. I think it would be likely you know, to, to compare it in terms of the amount of aircraft, the amount of weapons, uh, to having, let's say, like another half of the Israeli army uh, off of, off of the, the coast of, uh, of Lebanon. Um, and then we have, you know, I'm going to stop. You, you go and sort of lay out for people the international I'll, geopolitics I'll, I'll make i'll make it simple i'll make it very simple all of these ships are not showing up because militarily we need them here they're showing well they're showing up for two reasons one this is a huge show of support and again you know this is not and i and i say it's it's almost comical that i have to say this this is not a thousand rockets fired on israeli cities and that's it right which is what we've been used to um, th- th- this was so horrendous, uh, but, but militarily Hamas is nothing compared to the IDF. The IDF fell asleep, right? The, the might of the IDF, uh, and I don't think people really appreciate this. The people who, you know, and, and I want to kind of bring in uh, Amy Lord's question or statement here about thoughts on American universities and their anti-Israel rhetoric. And this is, ties back to what we were talking about. People who, who criticize Israel or, or, or who just have no concept of how militaries or, or wars work or why wars are waged. By the way, we didn't bring the aspect in of it is very, very different that when a democracy is dragged into a war versus when a dictatorship instigates a war. Um, and, and that's a whole nother element that we can unpack it maybe at a, a different podcast. Um, people don't maybe understand that the Israeli military, if it wanted to do what Russia wants to do in Ukraine, would obliterate Gaza within a day. Hamas is not even close to coming to the capabilities of even one Israeli division, let alone, you know, their air power is, is, you know, Iranian and Chinese drones. Uh, they've depleted. They've either depleted or, or have had Israel now destroy their entire array of missiles, except for the one just fired by my house. Um, it's not a military competition. The only reason Gaza is still standing and Hamas is still in power is because Israel is so recalcitrant to harm Palestinian civilians and cause a humanitarian catastrophe. And people really don't appreciate that. People really don't appreciate it that the fact, and and again, I don't want this to come off in the wrong way, but the fact that only a thousand Palestinians are killed every time Hamas instigates one of these wars is because of such an unbelievable amount of Israeli restraint. You saw what the Saudis did in Yemen, where they are being attacked from Yemen. You saw what 
Russia is doing in the Ukraine, where Russia invaded the Ukraine unprovoked. You saw what the United States did in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you can argue if it was provoked or not provoked. 9-11 obviously was a provocation. Iraq, I'm not sure. This is not just a provocation. This is a, you know, coming into the homes of Israeli towns and cities. So where do we go from here? Here we have to talk about Israel does not have a lot of good options. And attached to those not very good options, you have, uh, I, I want the, the listeners here and, and you, Benny, to try to imagine hourglasses, okay, strategic hourglasses. Um, and one of those hourglasses is domestic public opinion. What, how much support? When a country goes to war, any country goes to war, any country that's a democracy goes to war, it has a domestic public opinion hourglass. How much breathing space do you as a military have to conduct your operation? And there is a direct, you know, X, Y axis of, of that hourglass based on um, how achievable are your goals? How much threat is there to your population? Or how much suffering has your population endured, which actually makes that go up to a point, right? So, the, so you know, a thousand rockets fired. And, and a few people killed gives you a certain amount of breathing space to conduct an operation. 1,300 people killed gives you a lot of public support to do what the military feels it needs to do to remove this threat. But then you have another, then you have another uh, hourglass. And that hourglass is the one of international support. And right now, you have a lot of credit. I'll, I'll borrow from... Uh, uh, someone I sat on a panel with yesterday, a lot of international credit for Israeli operations in Gaza, credit that I wish we did not have because it was bought in blood. And it is going to go down fast with every Palestinian civilian killed as, as a result of the Israeli retaliatory operation. And, you, and we can justify that all we want, but that's the reality of how public opinion works. So all those British and German and whatever ships and NATO ships that are stationed off the, the, the coast of Israel will start disappearing with the U.S. being the last ones there, the more the Palestinian death toll grows. And doesn't matter how well we can explain why that's happening or how we're not happy with it. Now, to your question, though, of, of, of those ships and international support, kind of got off track a little bit, it's huge, it's important. But it's not important in the sense of we need their military support. It's feels really, good. It feels good. Uh, it feels like we're being finally supported and understood by the international community. The, the important point is that it is a very clear signal to Hezbollah, backed by Iran, maybe Syria, to stay out of this. And just yesterday, there were reported Israeli airstrikes deep in Syrian territory, and, and it's coming from Syrian sources, and they're saying those were um, arms convoys coming from Iran into Syria, maybe to Hezbollah, maybe to Syria, maybe to Iranian proxies in Syria. Um, Hezbollah is a different story than Hamas. Again, their strength doesn't compare at all to, to the strength of Israel, but they are far more potent, well-trained, and well-armed. Hamas had maybe 10,000 rockets. Hezbollah is estimated to have 150,000 rockets with much better degrees of accuracy um, than, than does Hamas. And that's going to be a very different fight when Hezbollah decides to get involved or is forced by Iran to get involved. And I think that's the real reason why there are U.S. and other warships 
now stationed off the coast, warning Hezbollah, backed by Iran, stay out of this. As so long, go, yeah, go ahead. So I'll go to give you three questions, and you can take them in whichever order you find most logical. One, as you know, it, it, apart from just d- displaying deterrence and demonstrating solidarity, uh, can you imagine the naval force actually? Uh, operating against forces in the region actively, uh, you know, unleashing their firepower? And in what circumstance would that happen? Uh, The second question is, what does an escalation on the northern border into Israel with those 150,000 rockets look like? Uh, Can Israel sustain that? Uh, Can we beat Hezbollah? Uh, and And then three sort of where does this where does this end? Uh, and, and and many Americans actually are probably wondering, you know, what about Russia? Yeah, first of all, the easiest one is the last one. I think Russia is just busy <laughs> right now with its own uh, war that it started that no one asked it to. Um, so we should not be concerned about Russia. I would put it lower on my on my list of uh, priorities at this moment. You should always be concerned about Russia because Russia is a spoiler. Because some, some people here believe that the ship's presence in the region are to combat Russian presence in Syria and to sort of dissuade them from becoming involved or be there, you know, in, in some sort of a way to show support, also to show support for the Americans' new coalition of allies in the Middle East that America has, you know, will put its money where its mouth is. Um. That's an interesting take, um, and, and maybe it's got some some merit to it. Um, I would prioritize getting Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah among them, uh, out of the equation, but maybe keeping Russia in check uh, ha- has to be part of it. There, there is some logic to that. I hadn't given it thought. Um, how does it end? Look, Israel has to make a very tough choice right now, and, and that is... Does it? It has to have a serious and aggressive response because it's clear that there was zero deterrence. I'm not even sure deterrence is what works with Hamas, is what we've learned. Because again, they will sacrifice every last Palestinian civilian in order to, to harm Jews. And I think it should be as simple as that. Um, so I'm not sure if even deterrence is the case. Um, maybe with Hezbollah, maybe it's not. Israel has to go in. I think it's being prepared. I think they're they're looking to do this carefully and not, um, you know, completely reflexively, which can get messy. And that's how you lose too many soldiers in the process. Uh, the question is: Is it going to be widespread with the goal of completely taking down Hamas, or is it going to be a little more achievable as far as setting back Hamas's military capabilities, not by a year, not by two years, but by ten years, but by twenty years? And that's the, the big question that has to be answered right now by Israeli uh, leaders who are probably in consultation with U.S., maybe other key allies, maybe even, you know, the, the new friends in the region as well. Um, there's one thing that's complicating this, or two, th- two things that are really complicating this, and one I've talked about, and that is Israel is really terrified, and not just because of international PR, to harm Palestinian civilians unnecessarily. It's it's something that really does weigh on the Israeli decision maker makers conscious, and people really don't appreciate that around the world. I've seen it. I've been in the command rooms. I've been on the planning tables. 
Um, it is a real concern that I don't think, I certainly don't think the Russians are saying that when they go into Ukraine, quite the opposite. And, and Hamas is, is, is literally doing the opposite. How can we harm as many civilians as possible? So that's one. Um, and, and we discussed that earlier. They're telling, you know, Israel's trying to tell civilians, get out, go south. Um, and here, I think you need Arab regional pressure on Hamas or to maybe set up a, a, a safe zone for civilians or, or get them out through the Egyptian border. I don't know what needs to be done. If you're going to go on the bigger equation, and that is a full ground invasion, it's going to take months. It's going to be door to door. It's going to be sweeping the tunnels. And then you have another major complicating scenario, and that's the hostages. We've never had this many hostages being held by an enemy force. I, I don't know if any terrorist organization, maybe uh, except for Boko Haram, you know, yeah, the Nigerians. hundreds of, of uh, or, or in Chechnya, right? Those are the two examples come to mind of this many hostages being held. Um, and, and what do we do with that? Right. And, and I don't know. I don't know where they are. I don't know how they're being held. I don't know if it's something that can be done with a commando raid. Um, you know, right now there is pressure. I'm being told there's a lot of pressure on Hamas that they're losing governance. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, that, that's the big question mark is I don't know right now how to get out of this. I think you definitely need a regional approach. To go back to my question, maybe because I know a lot of Americans are going to be thinking about this in the next couple of days as their military is in the region. Uh, what, what would have to take place for, for to, to get the Americans dragged in? First of all, um, and, and we're going to have to wrap up this segment. Um, That's fine. Everybody, for those who as, don't as Shabbat know, is coming Shabbat in. is coming in in Israel. Um, I, I served in the coordination unit with the American military and something that, you know, we're always so proud to serve side by side in America. It really is the greatest ally of Israel. It's the only country, in the, not the only, it's one of the few countries in the world that really gets it. On a, on a deep moral civilizational level. Um, that said, Israel, first of all, on a military level, is perfectly capable of handling Hamas by itself and more. And I don't want to have to see Americans uh, getting harmed here in any kind of way. Um, I think you would need to see a massive involvement of Hezbollah backed by Iran in order for America to somehow get involved. I think that American involvement would largely be aerial, through, uh, aerial or naval, or through uh, just bringing additional, uh, you know, anti-missile ships, ships that have interceptors on them. Um, are very, 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 very hard for me to see any kind of boots on the ground scenario. Um, nor do I think we would want it unless things really got out of hand with Hezbollah and the West Bank and Syria and Gaza at the same time, um, you know, which is kind of like the nightmare scenario that military planners have to look at. Is there a probability that's high of that happening? I don't know if it's high. There's always a probability and it's something military planners always have to look at, right? You have to look at every right. every case scenario that, that you I mean, because we see, we see we see Hezbollah sort of testing and teasing. Testing the waters, teasing the waters, making sure that, 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 that we know that it's there. Um, and, and, uh, and so again, that's, that's why I think that the U S and the other ships are there telling Hezbollah to back down. Also, we're telling Hezbollah to back down with our activities. And, uh, I, I like the way one uh, Israeli military analyst said it on the news the other night. It's kind of like a dance of porcupines, <laughs> you know, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, uh, 
we can be that much more powerful than Hezbollah. They are still a very formidable foe that we don't want to have uh, a conflict with, and and we have no territorial claims over Lebanon. We have we don't want to have anything to do with them. Um, so so that's where we are now. The next week is going to be critical to seeing how this goes. Um, what Hamas does with these hostages is going to probably have a lot to play with what happens and, and what Israel does or doesn't do with them. Um, and and we'll have to see. I want to say a last word here before we end for today is uh, as the the threat to the Israeli home front from Gaza, from Hamas, has largely ended and the fight is now taken to them. Um, I'm actually at this point right now more concerned about Jewish communities around the world and and, and seeing the rhetoric, um, violent, violent rhetoric. Um, the, the, and, and, and that rhetoric from... Oh, let's, let's yeah, expand that also, the, the Jews on college campuses as well. Especially campuses, but not just. Um, it, it's frightening. Hamas is really playing public opinion here. Um, and, and it is coddled and it is encouraged by those who do not take a clear moral stance. And, and people, even people that I know who have said to me, all war is bad. Okay. Uh, but again, you cannot put the the victim and the defender on the same plane as the attacker. Um, moral, moral relativism. Moral relativism, all war is bad. And let's end the cycle of violence. Um, you know, you can only end the cycle of violence when both sides have achievable goals. And you say, if you stop the violence, this is what I'm willing to do. And if I, uh, you don't have that with Hamas. You have an entity really, really trying to pull the region into war. And the only way that they stop is when they feel they are on the cusp of total defeat. Um, uh, to our friends, Jewish communities around the world, watch yourselves in this time. Stand up strong to this uh, hatred. Um, watch your backs uh, physically also. Uh, but don't, awareness. Don't, ac- don't accept the moral relativism. There is a right and there is a wrong. Um, and, and I'll say to our Friends who who maybe are not in the solid you know pro Israel camp, you do not have to be. Uh, you can be pro Palestinian and be anti Hamas, and that is where we should all be. Um, you can be pro Palestinian and pro Israel. That is a very real thing that can and should exist. Um, we all need to take a stance against Hamas, against terrorism, and not excuse what they've done in any kind of mental or intellectual or post colonial gymnastics that you see happening on these campuses. And that's why the campuses have what they have. We can have another episode on this. We've talked about it in the past. It comes from the infiltration of Marxist thought infiltrating U.S. campuses to to the point where they're just intellectual rot at this point, to answer the questions of some of our uh, readers here, uh, and to be a a fair-minded intellectual or, God forbid, a pro-Israel intellectual on many campuses in the U.S. and certainly in Europe is very difficult, if not impossible. Um, and, and so be careful, stand up strong. That's the only way to deal uh, with this. Those who want to engage in conversation, engage with them. But those who, who are calling for the death of Jews after 1,300 Jews were murdered in cold blood and are somehow daring to compare um, you know, harm that's come to Palestinian civilians, again, not applauding it or not, not happy about it, but to, to what just happened, uh, need to be put in their place, um, verbally speaking, of course, 
um, and, um, and, and be on your guard and stand strong in this, in this very tough time. So with that, I'd like to conclude and just say thank you very much, Dan, for joining us during a difficult time. Uh, and also thank you, uh, thank you, Elisheva, for allowing Dan <laughs> to join us while you're preparing in the background for Shabbat. I can see you uh, coming across the screen a couple of times. I'm sure you're preparing a really nice meal and halot and, and you're about to sit down for Kiddush, uh, which, is, which is great. I wish I was there uh, in more ways than you, know, than, than, than you, than you can imagine. Um, we're going to keep doing this. Uh, I think, you know, it's important for our listeners that we bring real-time updates of what's going on from Dan, uh, piped in from his home in Rehovot or, uh, you know, from, from, from others that are coming to us from Israel that we'll bring onto the show. Uh, we'll have guests join us as we continue with this. Uh, and, and again, uh, just want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. I wish we, everybody. Uh, yeah. We, we recommend, uh, again, if you're not following the show already, um, on whatever uh, you know, Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts or whatever social media platform you're on, follow it. If you're not following us on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, uh, YouTube and um, Twitter, please uh, do so. Um, it's X now, Dan. It's not Twitter. It's oh, X. sorry, sorry. X. And, and then you can write in parentheses, formerly known as Twitter. But they they still have to do this. Twitter. Uh, yeah. We will have guests. Uh, we will bring different perspectives. We will have Palestinian guests in the coming weeks. We'll have guests from the Arab world. Uh, we'll have military experts. Um, and, and we'll, uh, we'll keep with these uh, weekly shows or maybe more uh, as long as this unfortunate conflict continues. If you have ideas for, uh, for guests or for episodes, if you have questions that you want to be addressed on the shows, feel free to reach out to us. Um, and Benny, uh, I hope here in Rehovot, at least in Israel, we have a very quiet Shabbat. I hope Jewish communities around the world have a quiet yeah. Shabbat. I fear they won't, uh, but um, we hope they do. And uh, it's good to be, even though in, in this uh, unfortunate time, it is good to be back with you on Juanst. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry that I had to take this to, to make it happen. Uh, but, but, but again, I want to echo what you said. Shabbat Shalom to all of our listeners and people around the world. I uh, hope that you have a peaceful relaxing and fulfilling Shabbat. Uh, and if you're not Jewish, I hope that you have a beautiful and wonderful weekend spent together with friends and family and that you're safe and happy. All right. Take care, everybody. Peace and love. Ami Sayel Chai. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.